0: You're listening to audio from Restoration Church. If you enjoyed the message and would like to get connected to our church, follow us on social media at Restoration Cambridge or at our website, restoration-church.ca. Send us a message and we would love to hear from you. Toto, I have a feeling we're not in Kansas anymore. You ever felt that? You know, you've gone to sleep, and woken up in a land of Oz, a strange, mysterious place full of surprises and unexpected events that look wildly different than some bygone era. And I sympathize. There are the old ways that I miss. Road hockey. No one plays road hockey anymore. Like, what's, what's that all about? Rollerblading. I used to rollerblade every day. I have not seen a soul roller... Bl- now it's uncool to rollerblade, I think. I used to rollerblade to school, to high school, all the time. You're laughing. I, that's what I did. Pogs. Like, po- Pogs were cool at one point. They, were the ra- they took over elementary schools when I was in elementary school. 90s starter jackets, which I think are coming back, which, which are cool now, but they were the, all the rage when I was a kid. Man, I miss some of those bygone eras. Saying the Lord's Prayer in public schools. How wild is that to think? That's what I grew up in, saying the Lord's Prayer in a public school every single morning. Relics of a bygone era. And you wake up to a different world. And again, I sympathize. Things change and are changing really fast. You think you get a hold on a worldview and then all of a sudden the world has moved on to another view. Things change fast. And those who are younger that are frustrated by the older generation's hesitancy to giant cultural shifts, you might want to curb your frustration as you will be the resistant one next generation. While we may have little control over changing dynamics, it is important to consider the Christian's response to a radically changing and developing a different world, a world that may be uncomfortable to you, as it was to Paul here in Acts 17. While your, this is key, while your surroundings ever change, your core commandments and your core values as a Christian don't. They don't change. While your surroundings will ever change, your core commands won't to love God and love your neighbor, you think, Aaron, it's harder now. I'm not so sure if it's harder to love God and love your neighbor. You think, Aaron, well, the world, you know, the world is different. They're against God. I don't know if it's harder to love God or love your neighbor as any other time period in history. What I would say is it's clearer to love God and love your neighbor. As in, it is when you are out of your element. Do you truly love God? Do you truly love your neighbor when your surroundings change? Paul is alone. He's not in Kansas anymore. He's in the land of Oz or a land known as Athens. Athens would not have been in its heyday anymore. It would have been four or five centuries later after its heyday. But Athenian culture had great influence uh, throughout the ancient world, as you can, you maybe you've seen pictures of you know of Greek philosophers in robes, you know, you know expounding on theory and ideas. That's Athenian culture had great influence. Its ideas, its symbols, and its worldviews spread across that known world. It was incredibly influential, even into the Roman Empire. And some of, and much of, their ideas and influences were diametrically opposed to. Paul's worldview as a Jewish man and now as a Jewish Christian, a lot of those Athenian ideas would have been diametrically opposed to his worldview. And maybe in a similar situation that you find yourself as, Athenians didn't view Yahweh God as creator, sustainer, and Jesus Christ as salvation bringer. So much so was his worldview not w- w- diametrically opposed to the, uh, to the prevailing culture. It mentions two kinds of people in verse 18. As he starts reasoning with them, it says some people known as Epicureans and Stoics. You don't need to go into, I, mean, I can't go into too much detail about Epicureans and Stoics. But these were people who followed Epicurus and Zeno. The Stoics followed a man named Zeno. I mean, they're not as well known to us, but they stood alongside giants like Socrates and Plato and who's the other guy? Aristotle. Like all of these guys, they were leading philosophers and minds of that generation and still so, like it's still, we still have influences of those men down through the ages. Epicureans and Stoics, ironically, I think, represent a lot of the Western mind that we find ourselves in as we walk through 21st century Canada. I mean, this might sound very familiar to some of you. Stoics represented almost a pantheism, a world soul, that each soul is connected to each other and we are connected to the world. But there's no intelligent being, or if there is a God, he's somewhere, or God's a... somewhere out there in in space, and not really connected to everyday life. It was kind of an ancient form of what you would think of as modern spiritualists. You know, like when you flip through Instagram, you see people like, they're very into spirituality, like we're all connected through some sort of life force, but you know, there's no intelligent being over us. That was kind of this stoic Worldview, a connection to all, seeking a good for all, with no religious connection, though. As in, there are gods, but they are likely unconcerned with humanity. The chief belief of a Stoic was human dignity. Sometimes sacrifice in the name of the better good was something that was a big belief for Stoics. In, 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 In modern day, in 21st century Canada, to be honest, assisted suicide is nothing new. Like, that existed for a long time. You know, like, we're having debates about assisted suicide. Stoics, like, assisted suicide is a very stoic worldview. Not only that, Epicureans were the people of pleasure. They believed that pain and suffering always should be avoided. Live your life for yourself now. That was the chief goal of man is to find pleasure, to be happy. Like, none of these, these they don't sound crazy thought. Like, this is still very much Western thought, both of these things. What makes you feel good is the ultimate good. And to both, a message of a personal God and resurrection from the dead, honestly, was laughable to them. Like, it was something to be Like it was something to be laughed at or canned, and not to be taken seriously. Look what it says in verse eighteen when it says, "Epicurean and Stoic philosophers they conversed with him," and some says, "What is this babbler saying?" (laughs) Babbler means literally seed picker. They're calling him a crow who picks like garbage off of the ground. Like, like, what is he talking about? They didn't take him seriously. He's to be ignored. And maybe I would say, like, you ever felt like that? In a culture that doesn't share your view, your worldview, your values, like Paul here in Athens, you're almost ashamed of the worldview that you have. You're like a babbler and not to be taken seriously in 21st century Canada. You're almost ashamed of, world view, of your worldview in the midst of other dominating views that are out there. Well, Paul, I think, felt probably the same. So how do we respond in Oz? It's not Kansas anymore. How do you respond in Oz? I think there's two ways that we can wrongly respond. One is this. We can be really frustrated. Frustration. Man, I, I am an impatient person, very naturally. I get really frustrated with people. I think often we can respond to odds with frustration. We wish things were, we long for the good old days, and we wish things were different. Bring back. They should bring back the Lord's Prayer in schools. You know, like when we get frustrated about those things. We wish things were different, and rather than demonstrate love, We are impatient with differences. And I've been there. We're impatient with differences. Think of how Paul felt in verse 21, the one who clung to the creator of heaven and earth. Look what it says in verse 21. The only reason he was invited to speak at the Areopagus because it says now all the Athenians and the foreigners who lived there would spend their time in nothing except telling or hearing something new. I mean, that's probably, first of first you fickle Athenians. It's the only reason you want me to speak is because you want to hear something cool and new and trendy. He sounds kind of, like, kind of like a boomer, like frustrated with, with fickle millennials. I'm a millennial, by the way, so I've, I can say these things. I get it. Like chasing the new thing, that's frustrating. Paul is invited to speak because they're fickle. These millennials in their weird words, like cray and that's fire and Gucci, what stupid words. And walking around in their blundstones, which I got the knockoff, blundstones, I think. But slightly inaccurate to what's going on here, but there's a lot to be frustrated about. And I think often we can respond to odds in frustration. Secondly, wrongly, we can respond with fear. We're afraid of people. We're afraid of the world. So we hide in our churches. We hide in our homes. This one is big. Like, we as Christians, I can say, there's some things that I'm like, I don't know what I'm talking about. This is one thing, like we are not to walk in fear. We don't walk in fear as Christians. We walk by faith. Amen? Someone give me an amen. We don't walk by fear. No matter what happens in this world, we are not to walk by fear. We cannot be afraid of people. We cannot be afraid of our world. We walk by faith no matter what. And if we are not careful, we start making decisions with our children, our church, how we relate to people, and how we see people based upon fear and not by faith. Rather than reach the world, we're afraid of it. Hear what I'm saying? Both of these attitudes come from how you see. You see opinions, and when I succumb to these things, you start to see opinions, politics, YouTube videos, articles, idols, flags, but not souls. Paul, in verse 16, as he walked around the city, look what it says in verse 16. Now, while Paul was waiting for them in Athens, he said his spirit was provoked within him because he saw that the city was full of idols. It says his spirit was provoked within him. And it was literally, it, it is a type of anger, but not based upon frustration, more of a jealous anger, to be honest. One that is disturbed, but then is turned to action. I guess you could probably define it as like he was moved. You know, someone might say to me, Aaron, I was moved by your message. No one has said that to me. I said they might. No, not a single person of you has said you were moved by one of my messages. But if you did say you were moved, hint, hint, (laughs) I would say to what? Like the, the, the inference of to be moved is you are moved to a certain action, not just like a feeling. And so Paul, when he felt this jealous type of anger, was moved to do something about it. He was moved to action, and that's precisely what Paul does. So they invite him to speak at the Areopagus, the hill of Ares, or otherwise known as Mars Hill. But what motivates what Paul says is what Paul sees. Look down in verse 22 as he starts his speech at the Areopagus. And again, there's so much in here, and I cannot do justice to this passage. So if you have questions, I'd love to talk with you afterwards. Or you can talk about it in your Bible studies this week as you open up and be like, what, what do you think about this passage? It's a fantastic passage and how we relate and communicate in our world. So, Paul standing in the midst of the Areopagus, he says, Men of Athens, I perceive, I see this, you're very religious. I also saw something else. As I passed along and observed the objects of your worship, I found an altar with the inscription, To the Unknown God. See, Paul is aware and, and seeing what is going on in the people of Athens, that for all their religiosity, and I'm going to get to this in a second, but let me kind of like say this, for all their religiosity, for all their idol worship and desire for something new, hiding underneath all of that, that Paul could see was a profound insecurity, existential insecurity, If you're always chasing something new, what does that show that you have very little that you're standing on right now? Like the foundation and identity that you are currently standing on is incredibly brittle if you're always chasing something new you've very little to stand on maybe this new thing will finally bring me what i seek maybe this new sermon will finally bring me what i seek not only that but paul sees an idol called to the unknown god all of these idols which when you walk the street of athens at that time you still even see some of them today but and at that time, they would line row upon row of God after God after God after God, God of agriculture and stars and so like all of these named gods. And then they had some that were had almost like the inscriptions were washed out, and they didn't know who the god was. So they, the, to the unknown god, because man, maybe, what if we miss one? What if what if what if one demands our worship that we miss? Like there's there's underneath this idol worship and beautiful statues and was just this profound insecurity of like, we don't, I don't know who I am. Their worldview was so frail, they had a just-in-case in their back pocket because what if we miss out on what this is all about? Imagine the fear and anxiety and the weight that what if I miss what all of this is about because the idol, this is important, the idol we worship is wrapped up in who I am and how I view myself, and what I belong to and where my identity lies. That's what an idol is. It's not just something of stone that we sing to. We wrap our entire lives in what we worship. That's what an idol is. Listen to this definition. This was, now, this is a little bit thick. Really important, though. Here, here's what an idol is. This is by a man named Willie James Jennings. He said this, the idol is a collective self-deception, a point of facilitation where human fantasy and wish circulating around material realities generate distorted hope. Now, I know that was a little thick. Let me say it again, though. I should have had it on the screen. Sorry, Nolan. I say that every time. The idol is a collective self-deception. A point of facilitation where human fantasy and wish circulating around something that's not real, it's a material reality, generate distorted hope. Through the creation of an idol, an identity is created. What we worship, that's who we are. That's where we place our, our dreams, our hopes, and it's to whom we belong to. So as you worship the idol, um, a fabricated self is sustained. You know, if you were to break down the idol, you almost like have to lose yourself. That's what I belong to. That's what I've given my life to. So as you worship that idol, a fabricated self is sustained. That's why we are so unable, as Christians too, so unable to let go of what we worship because we have to let go of you, like who you are. That's why I can't just like stand and be like, lay down your idols. I was like, what does that mean for me then? I, what am I living for then, Aaron? Who am I? Wrapped up in every idol is a human. Idols created by humans, but at the very same time demanding allegiance and worship from them, promising them to give them an identity, a belonging, but isn't real. That's an idol. That's what provoked Paul to jealous anger. Not frustration of culture, but scores and myriads of people living in constant fear, giving themselves to something that cannot give them what they seek. He sees the lost soul. And that motivates him to proclaim the hope of a real, true, unknown God to them. I'm just going to read this, and I can't do everything. I'm going to do my best to kind of point out what's important. Verse 33, verse, verse um, I don't know why I put verse 33, verse 23, but let me, let me say, for as I passed along and observed the objects of your worship, I found also an altar with this inscription to the unknown God. And then he says, what therefore you worship as an unknown, this I proclaim to you. and having determined allotted periods and boundaries of their dwelling places that they should seek God and perhaps feel their way toward him and find him. I don't want to make this sermon about evangelistic tools because I think it's more about how we view people as Christians and also the gospel is proclaimed to us that will motivate you. But practically speaking, I just want to say this to Christians in the room who are like, you know, how do I evangelize and communicate? This is practically speaking, this might be oversimplistic, so you're going to have to forgive me. Awareness and listening to the people you're communicating to is so important in our day. What I love about Paul here is he doesn't come in planning any of this speech. Like, he doesn't come into Athens being, this is what I'm going to say. He takes note and is aware of where the burden of the Athenians are and then communicates the gospel to them. Do you understand what I'm saying here? Like he's aware and listening to that's where the burden of the Athenians is and that's where the gospel will be spoken of. Not only is it good manners to listen to people, but it's how you communicate the gospel, unfortunately including myself we're not great listeners i think sometimes constant screens have programmed us to almost be like dogs and be distracted really easily but honestly one of the best things that happened to me was i spent time in an old folks home early on in my pastoral ministry no one else wanted to do it i didn't even want to do it but i was lowest on the totem pole so i didn't have a choice Okay? So I had to go every week to the old folks' home and sit down with these people for hours and they would just tell you stories. And eventually I, was, I so appreciated the, that I, I didn't have, there was nothing else to do other than sit with people and listen to their stories and seek to encourage them in the Lord. By being aware and listening, here's the important part eventually you'll get to someone's, the soul's burden. Someone this week in our church shared the gospel with someone because they sat down with someone else and all of a sudden after a period of time goes to find out, actually my marriage is almost over. It's collapsing. You never would have known that if you didn't sit down with them and actually talk to them and listen to them my marriage is collapsing. And now it's like all of my view of love and commitment is just like thrown in the garbage. And this person was able to share, well, this is what I believe about love because God first loved me. You understand what I'm saying here? If you just come in and say, here's my rehearsed speech, you're not talking to a person. You're just talking, you're just talking, reading through lines. Listen for the burden. Eventually, you will get to that soul's burden. My marriage is collapsing. I am profoundly disappointed in my career. You'll get to a fear of the world or authorities, a life of addictions, a history of abuse. None of those, you can, no, no one's going to tell you that after like 30 seconds. That's not true. I had one person. I had one I've had a couple of people do that and it's really awkward because you don't really know them. Most people though aren't going to tell you that. You have to take time and listen. But the gospel isn't for lectures. It's not for monologues. It's good news for people. For conversations, for dialogue. It meets the human soul to give life and light where there is only darkness. And that's why I say to all of you here today, We all have an, let's listen, guys, whether you know Jesus or not, and I'm talking to everyone in the room, we all are tempted to have an unknown God in our back pocket that we place our hope and our dreams on, that we think is going to give us what we seek, and it reveals our fear and our fragile standing that we actually walk through in life. We cling to that thing, or we are searching for something that will bring us what we seek. And maybe surprisingly, Paul actually says, did you notice in the text, that searching is actually a good thing. He says in verse 27 that they should seek God and perhaps feel their way toward him and find him. Before that, Paul says, if I could summarize what he says about God in verse 24 to 26, that there is no cosmic struggle. All is from God. Also, he's not dependent on you, but we on him. And he has established a common people, with, but with different expressions in different places. So as we observe those three things, that all things come from God, that we learn to be dependent, that we can't, we can't be dependent upon ourselves, and as we observe the, the, to see the beauty of God's creativity simply in people, God has arranged everything that we would somehow find him. Like, there must be a God out there where this all comes from. The Greeks believe they sprung up from the ground in Greece that made them superior to the barbarians. But as we see the beauty and value of people, that's pointing us to a God where, that from one source where all people come from. God has done these things that as you learn to appreciate and depend, you would, as it says in verse 27, feel your way toward him. It's a fascinating phrase. It's like a picture of a person wandering in the dark reaching out looking for something to lean upon i don't know if ever you wake up in the middle of the night and you can't see anything and you're like trying to find we just replaced in our bathroom uh lights because it was kind of dark and i i think i put 100 watt light bulbs and there's four of them we have 400 watts It's like the surface of the sun every time you go into our bathroom. And then at night, if you turn on it, for one, yeah, it does feel like you're staring into the sun. But then you turn it off and everything's pitch black. You can't see where you're going. So you're like reaching out. Like, where's the wall? You're tripping on kids have like a million stuffies at home, so you're tripping on stuffies, all these kind of, all those things, and that's kind of the pictures. like, you're in the dark, you don't know where you're going, but you're trying to find something to lean onto, some sort of thing, foundation that's solid to place your life upon. In some ways, this is going to, this is gonna date me so much, but Christina was loving the 90s worship we had playing in the foyer this, this morning. Um, but it reminded, for some reason, I don't know why, my brothers and I were, were reflecting on our upbringing and some of you know and have heard Greg will know this person. Well, You'll know Michael W. Smith, right? Some people know Michael W. You guys, you don't care. It doesn't matter. But he sang this song on the synthesizer, and it's even got the classic in the bridge, the guitar solo that every early 90s song had. But it was called My Place in This World. Ruth, you know, she's like shaking her head. She's don't remind me of that song, Aaron, but there was, it, it was, the, the words for some reason kept coming back to me. It's like, I'm looking for a reason roaming through the night to find my place in this world. In some ways, it's like, oh yeah, Michael W. Smith back in the 90s, but this is kind of the picture of, of what this verse is. Like, people are roaming through this world looking for something to stabilize them, to have an identity and a belonging That search can unfortunately lead us to lean on to what we were never intended to lean on and place all of our fears and anxieties upon like positions of power, who we sleep with and financial security, those things we call an idol if you are placing all of your your identity and belonging on a fabrication of a God that won't bring you what you seek. The encouragement, Paul says this, They seek God, perhaps feel their way toward him and find him, yet he is actually not far from you. Paul looks into the eyes of everyone there at the Areopagus and I think metaphorically as you read this passage, it's looking into your eyes as well. The thing that you are placing your identity and belonging on, and still not finding stability, still not finding identity and purpose. It says, God is not far from you. In fact, he is in you. He is you are from him. He's not some distant figure out there to work toward, but you are his child. You belong to him, as it says, in him we live and move and have our being. Even the Greek poet said, We are indeed his children, his offspring. I know i got to end. I'm going to end. Being then God's offspring, we ought not to think that the divine being is like gold or silver or stone, like an, an idol, an image formed by the art and imagination of man. The times of ignorance God overlooked, but now he commands all people everywhere to repent because he fixed the day on which he will judge the world in righteousness by a man whom he has appointed, and of this he has given assurance to all by raising him from the dead. In short, Paul is saying you can't change this God into your image like an idol. All you can do, he changes you into his image. You can't change him into your image, he changes you into his. So your only response is to surrender. God, I give you my life. As Jesus was resurrected to new life, the promise is, so will you. You'll be given new life. That's the message to you today. That's the message our world needs to hear. Uh, and it changes everything. One guy, uh, Church Planter, this past week that I got to know, sorry, there's no one there. I'm saying sorry to the thing. Um, one guy, is Church Planter, he's from, uh, if you believe this, I don't want to share too much of his story because he's writing a book. It's kind of a memoir of his testimony. He's planting a church here in Ontario. He's already planted it, full of Arabic people. Uh, He lived in northern Iraq, worked for Saddam Hussein's political party. Head of library, head of the books. What people? Because that political party had complete control over what people could read and what they couldn't read. Somehow, miraculously, he got his hands, he's a a political agent, right? Got his hands on a New Testament. Opened it up and couldn't put it down. I've never heard of this. That God is not far from me. Came down to me. All of these things that I've been living, trying to reach God, Living in a fear and anxiety of trying to reach him, but never being close to him. Now to discover that God came to me. He's not far from me. Changed his life. He's got four kids. He's in the Saddam Hussein political party. And he says, Aaron, once they were liberated, they became a democracy by title, but not in practice. So the political party can't technically persecute you for becoming a Christian, but what they can do is when you know they take off their political garments and now they're civilians, they can stir up your town against you to the point where it became clear that just like the other Iraqi that I talked to was uh, you either leave or we will kill you. So they left. The biggest thing that changed in his life He grew up hating and being taught to hate everyone who is different than him. In Kansas, you're fine. Everyone's like you. That's your crew. In Oz, you hate. After he gave his life to Jesus, God started to give him life to change his life, to respond with love to the point of planning a church here for, Ara- for Arabic people in Ontario, that they would experience the same kind of life transformation, to give their life to Jesus and live out the way of Jesus here, here in this world. The title of his book can't be any better. It's called The End of Hatred. I'll let you know when it comes out. He's a friend of mine. Nothing will encourage you more than the stories that you hear. How do you respond in the land of Oz? Because you're not in Kansas anymore. I'm going to invite the team to come forward now and close us off with a song. Allow me to pray for you and for me as we go from this place here today. Before I pray, you know, as you've got your eyes closed, In one way, maybe you need to be like, Aaron, I've, yeah, I feel uncomfortable, like Paul did in Athens. I don't love people very well. I'm frustrated and I'm afraid. And you need to seek grace and courage from our God. Maybe today's the day that you do that. Like, I've got someone in my life that I'm frustrated about or that I'm afraid of, but I know I need to share the good news of Jesus. I need to spend time with them. I'd love to pray with you. So come, up, come to the front after. Or maybe you're sitting here today being like, Aaron, I have this unknown God in my back pocket that I have been holding on to. And I have not given myself to Jesus the only one who can give you what you really seek. I've wrapped up my identity, I've wrapped up my belonging in my partner, my work, my family, and an idol. Maybe today is the day where you say, I surrender my life to Jesus. If that's you, say, you can do business with God yourself right now. Say, God, I, I give my life to you. I trust in your sacrifice for me and I want to follow you the rest of my days. You can say a simple prayer now if you want. But I would love to hear about that. So come talk to me after the service as well. Let me pray. God, we are so thankful that we were able to Be together and reflect on this story that I believe you've ordained for us to reflect on. I didn't really plan to say these things on this day, but you have ordained them to be for our church today. Would your spirit come now in our church and change us? Man, may we not be a frustrated church. May we not be an afraid church. May we be a church that walks by faith that isn't afraid to declare. There is a God near to you. There's a God near to you. And he has made everything in your life that you would find him. And you've been stumbling around in the dark. May we never be afraid to speak that life-changing message, to offer people the only hope that matters, that will give them what they seek. May we not long for Kansas. May we live faithfully here in Oz. Yeah, Lord, we pray for these things in your name. Amen. Let's stand and sing as we close.